The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. 1 John chapter 4, uh, this first part of the chapter has been the jumping off point for our study about doctrinal discernment. And John writes, beginning in verse number 1, uh, 1 John chapter 4, he said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our subject is discernment, and we're discussing spiritual wisdom, how to decide between truth and error. John makes a very simple, concise statement about this in verse number 6 when he says, We are of God. Let's understand what he means when he says, We are of God. There he is talking about the apostles, uh, those who have written Scripture. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, if you read the words of the apostles whom God has given truth, and if you hear and believe the words that were written by others that we have in Scripture that God authorized through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us the Scriptures, then you have found the truth, and if you believe that truth, you are born of God. Now, if a person doesn't believe the Scriptures, he's not of God, John said that is the difference between truth and error. Now, without question then, According to the apostle, anyone who rejects the word of God as being absolute truth and all of the word of God, he says, then that person is not of God. And so we can rule out uh, any person without hesitation who doesn't believe the scriptures and accept them. He is not born of God. Now, essentially, what John is telling us here is that the scriptures teach the truth, that all truth is God's truth. And Jesus said that we have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And no one knows truth outside of the truth of the Scripture. So those who interpret the doctrines of the Scripture in, in such a way as that's consistent with the nature and the character of God, and those who believe, as John says in this text, that Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God, that He is God in the flesh. He said, if you believe that, if, if Scriptures are taught in that way, then that shows us whether the person is a teacher, a true teacher of the Word of God. Now, just to briefly catch you up on where we are in our study of doctrinal discernment, I mean, we, we're, we've been a few weeks now with all the breaks that we've had, uh, and you may have forgotten where we are. So we're, we're in part number two of our outline, which is the doctrines engaged. 
And by that I mean, what are, the, what are these doctrines that we're, we want to talk about that we really need to be discerning about to tell the difference between truth and error? And we discuss that there are degrees of error. We've learned that not all doctrines that you read in the Bible are of the same importance. You and I might disagree on some doctrines. We, we may disagree on a doctrine like the doctrine of fasting. And there's a lot of disagreement about that. Should we fast? Should we not fast? Is that an old-time doctrine that we don't, something that we don't need to do? Well, we might disagree on whether we ought to fast or not, but that disagreement can never be raised to a level where that we would say, well, if you don't believe what I believe about fasting, then you can't possibly be saved. That, that's not a doctrine that tells you the difference between heaven and hell. We might disagree over the proper form of church government. I may say, well, no, church, church government is this. Church, church government is congregational in nature and that it should be under, the government of the church is under a strong pastor and yet is a congregational rule. And yet there may be others who say, well, no, the, the church is to be elder ruled, that it's to be a plurality of elders and the congregation is subject to the decisions of the elders. And we might disagree on that, but that's not a doctrine that we elevate and say, well, this is a difference between whether you can be saved or you can't be saved. But there are other doctrines that fall squarely in that, in that category. They make a difference. What you believe about those doctrines are going to make a difference between heaven and hell. They're determiners. They are non-negotiables. You have to insist upon them. And that's what John says here. Now, he doesn't mention all the doctrines in this text that he would be talking about, but he um, does let us know that there is such a category. He leads us in the right direction when he says, unless you believe these things, then you are not of God. Now, that's quite different from what you hear in the modern generic church, that most churches say, well, doctrine, that really doesn't matter, does it? Does it really matter what you believe? And they're not insistent upon certain doctrines, and the reason they aren't, they want to keep things to the lowest common denominator. We need fellowship. So we're willing to, uh, uh, we're willing to surrender whatever we have to to keep the unity, to keep the fellowship together. It really doesn't matter too much what you believe. And so the lowest common denominator is this. Do you breathe air? And if you breathe air, then you're among us. We can all get together. We all breathe air. That makes you a child of God. Well, that sounds kind of silly to us. But we have heard things like people say, well, we're all God's children, aren't we? We are all God's children. But that's not what Paul said, did he? Paul said that people that are carnal, they're not God's children. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews who refused to believe in him, he said, you're of your father the devil. He didn't say anything about them being God's children. So we've looked at some of these critical doctrines that uh, differentiate truth and error, things that we really have to pay very, very strict and close attention to. And we just, I'll just mention the ones that we've talked about so far. How far we've talked about soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And it seems only too obvious that we would say, well, what you believe about salvation is the determining factor. Do you believe the truth about salvation? That would be critical to whether you're actually saved. When you hear somebody say, well, there are many paths to God, you choose the path that you want, then we would say, well, that person does not have a biblical soteriology. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Now, soteriology mainly concerns the way that we're justified with God. Is our justification by works? Is it by faith? Is it by a combination of the two? How are we justified with God? And according to the Scriptures, you have to have the right answer to that question. Justification is one of the cardinal doctrines of the faith. That's the one that separated 
Protestants from Catholics in the 16th century. We go back a little further than that. That's the doctrine that separated Baptists from Judaizers in the first century. It was about the doctrine of justification. Now, it makes a difference, and the Apostle, the Apostle Paul said that those are not right on this. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, they are anathema. They're cursed if they don't believe rightly about justification. Then we also discuss Christology. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. What do you believe about him? What is his nature? Is he God? That is, in fact, the question that uh, John addresses here in our text. Belief in a legendary Jesus who is nothing like what the Scriptures describe him to be, that is not saving faith. Unfortunately, most people believe in a made-up Jesus. Uh, he just anything that they want him to be. They don't have a biblical view of Jesus, and so they're doomed to those false conceptions of him. A third doctrine that we looked at was the Trinity. And the Trinity is critical doctrine. That's about the nature of God. It's the truth that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is also God. Non-Trinitarians don't believe that God exists in three separate distinct persons, and yet they are the same God. And so they change who God is, and the ultimate result of changing who God is is to believe in a God who is not the God of the Bible. If you don't believe in the Trinity then that wouldn't be much different than somebody who's chosen an idol to worship. They're worshiping a false god. This is a very critical doctrine. There's only, only one god. The only god is the god of the Bible. And he is three separate persons in one. And to deny that truth is to destroy salvation. Now, admittedly, when a person gets saved, he doesn't really understand very much about the Trinity. Uh, you, you, you may not know... And even when we've been Christians for a long time, we don't understand the doctrine really, really well. But when you first get saved, you don't hardly understand that at all. But as you grow in your Christian life and you hear the doctrine of the Trinity taught, the Holy Spirit will open up your heart to the truth of that. A, a real Christian would never refuse to believe in the Trinity. And so if the Holy Spirit has not opened up your heart to that, to accept that, to believe it, then you really need to be worried about your salvation because that means the Spirit does not live in you. You know, I was reading uh, uh, some time ago about the Wheaton College controversy. I think I mentioned this a few, few weeks ago. And uh, you remember the problem there, if you've read the news on this, was about a, a tenured professor in this well-renowned Christian college who wanted to show solidarity with Muslims by wearing the habib of Muslim women. And so her excuse for this was, well, she wanted to show this solidarity because Muslims worship the same God that Christians worship. And as verification of that assertion, she, she quoted Pope Francis. And Pope Francis said, the Muslims are our brothers. They worship the same God that we worship. He said, uh, they have the faith of Abraham. They respect that faith. They have, they have common descent from him. It's true, Pope Francis said that. But you can see that his opinion is that he's a fool if he believes that, because that is the opposite of what John says here in this scripture. Muslims do not worship the same God that we worship for many reasons, but one of them is this glaring problem that they do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They actually call that a blasphemous doctrine. They do not believe that Jesus is God. In fact, they say Jesus cannot be son, the Son of God because that's totally foreign to their kind of thinking. That Jesus could be the Son of God. And so they say, well, no, he's not. He is a prophet. 
He's a prophet like Mohammed. And to call Jesus a son of God or the son of God, that's blasphemy. But this is specifically what John says in this text. Those who say that Jesus is not the son of God make God a liar. And a person who does that is not born of God. So how could a person who says that Jesus is not God, is not the Son of God, how could he worship the same God that we worship? Islam says that there is no difference in the prophets because their messages are the same and the prophets are true. And that's really hard to figure out when Jesus and Muhammad were so radically different. You can't get any clearer than John's testimony here in this text that people who believe those things are not of God. They are in the most serious of errors. Now that shows us, though, with this Wheaton controversy, that these kinds of errors exist at the highest level of Christian education. In many Christian uh, universities, schools, colleges, the doctrine of the Trinity is practically lost. And it's really a shame. Nearly the entire faculty of Wheaton College stood with this professor and said that she should not be fired for taking a stand that actually excludes her from Christianity. Now, can you imagine that, that you have Christian professors in colleges that aren't Christians? And yet, I think that's probably the, more the norm than not anymore. Now, another interesting point about that is that the president of Wheaton is a good man. Uh, that's Philip Ryken. He's a solid Christian. He was the uh, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, same church where James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor and Donald Gray Barnhouse before him. And it just appears that he has his work cut out for him trying to convert the teachers in a Christian college to become believers in Jesus. Now, where we left off, that, that's review, where we left off last time was with a discussion of bibliology. Now, bibliology is exactly what it sounds like. What do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about the authority of Scripture? And anything that undermines the authority of the Bible will at the same time alter our perception of God. So we want to know, is the Bible the only source of our authority about God? Is this the only place that we receive knowledge of God? And is the Word of God itself reliable? And our worldview depends on that. What do we believe about the authority of Scripture? Now, despite what the cults say, we have only one special source of revelation. And that is actually established here as one of the points that John makes in this text. John said, if you do not receive his words and the words of those of the Bible authors, then you cannot be of Christ. Now, the last time I, I told you that rules out all other revelations that claim to be the word of God, including those of charismatics who say that they receive special revelations through dreams and visions. Both the Old and the New Testaments contain warnings about additions to and subtractions from the Word. I mean, the Bible is the complete revelation that God gave of Himself. And aside from the natural revelation, which is what we see in the creation itself, aside from that, which tells us nothing about our relationship with God, there is no other revelation than the Bible. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to discuss uh, this aspect of the Bible. But before we go there, I, I just want to emphasize how vital that the Bible is to our faith. The Scriptures are, are true. We cannot circumvent them and at the same time have salvation. The Scriptures are vital to our faith. Now, we notice what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. 
He said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We are not born again by a corruptible seed. We are born by an incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. Now, that, that's a statement that we need to fixate on. The word is infallible. The word brings us the knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit uses the word in our regeneration. That's what Peter's telling us there. No one is saved without the agency of the Spirit using the incorruptible Word of God. Now, I want to quote to you from uh, one of the daily devotions and table talk from the end of this uh, past January. And this kind of gives you an idea why I prefer to read uh, table talk rather than other daily devotions, even though I don't agree with everything that's in there. But uh, there are some very, very good articles. And I want to read this article that, that is about faith that was in that January issue. Just a small part of it. It says, The teaching and preaching of Scripture are the ways that the Holy Spirit works faith in us. God's work of regeneration is required if we are to believe, yet He calls us to faith by the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our Lord saves us through what Paul refers to as a foolish message, namely, Christ crucified, a truth foreshadowed in the Old Testament and made plain in the New Testament. When the Word of God is proclaimed faithfully, God's Spirit accompanies it to change the hearts of His chosen and make them receptive to the message. He illumines the meaning of His Word, penetrates our souls with the knowledge of our sins and our only hope of salvation in Christ, and elicits our faith in the Savior. If we would have a strong faith, then the most important thing we can do is hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word as often as we can. As the Word is preached in corporate worship, the Spirit generates faith in those who do not yet believe and strengthens the faith of those who are already saved. And that article goes on to say that God continues to use the Word to build the faith of His people and to make them mature in the faith. Now, that's what I would call the double whammy of Scripture. That's my theological term for it. Uh, the Spirit generates faith in the unbeliever through the Word, and He strengthens the faith of the believer by the Word. So the Scriptures are vital. We can't neglect the Word. That is, that is too serious of a problem for us to ignore. And so when you hear preachers that want to preach their platitudes without the Word, what they actually do is they shut off the salvation of the soul, because that's what God uses to bring a soul to saving faith. And then they also stunt the growth of those who are already saved, because it's the Word of God that He uses to strengthen us in our faith. Now, uh, that I thought was just a great statement on, on the origin of saving faith. And there's a lot of doctrine that we could talk about in that statement that I just read. But the one that I want to concentrate on right now is the, important of the importance of the Scriptures for salvation. If the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to, to generate faith in the person that's going to come to Christ, then the belief of the Scriptures is a critical, decisive factor in salvation. So you could never bypass the Scriptures in saving faith. And so therefore, what you believe about the Word of God and the authority of God's Word is paramount to our salvation. And that's why the Bible has its own testimony. It contains warnings about trying to change the Word, attempts to pervert it, changing it, misinterpreting it, supplementing with anything that, that's not God's Word. 
anything that would alter its meaning, we have to watch out for because this is the way that we're saved and then strengthened. It's through the Word. So you take someone who tries to pawn off the Book of Mormon on unsuspecting people and telling them that that is another testament that God has given, that that's His Word also, or listening to charismatics who say, well, we have another revelation from God. Well, folks, that's treading on very dangerous territory. You're in dangerous territory. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of a person who claimed those things. I mean, what can be worse than tampering with the very thing that the Holy Spirit uses to bring faith in a person to salvation? How can you tamper with that? And then how can you tamper with the thing that God uses <coughs> to increase the faith of His people? That's the only thing that's going to produce a strong faith in us. And so plainly speaking, uh, churches that substitute their own teachings for Scripture stop growth. You're never going to grow in that kind of church. Now, if by some chance... <coughs> oh, chance, that's not a good word to use. I don't want to use the word chance. Let's say somebody in... In a, in, a, in a Roman Catholic church today gets saved, and we believe there are Roman Catholics that get saved if they believe the truth, if they hear the truth, they can be saved. But how could that person stay in Roman Catholicism where they're, they're taught the traditions of Roman Catholicism? How can they stay there? There's not going to be any growth there. They can't learn the Word of God there, so they have to move out of that place. And I think the, the Holy Spirit will move them. Now, first, let me say this, that there is no one who gives authority to the Scriptures. One of the greatest errors of Catholicism is the claim that the Catholic Church gives the Scriptures its authority. What they say is, what the Church says is binding. And, and the Church alone has the authority to interpret the Scriptures. And so that led Catholicism for, for many centuries to, to deny the Scriptures to the common man. So no one was allowed to have a Bible. The Mass and the liturgies were all said in Latin, a dead language that people couldn't understand. Um, they opposed the translation of Scripture into the common vernacular of the people, and so they took men like Whitcliffe and they persecuted him when he wanted to translate the Scriptures from Latin into English. So if the church then, according to them, gives authority to the Scripture, that means the church is free to manipulate it in any way that they want. They can do with it what they want. They can use the Scriptures to control people. And if they control the Scriptures, they also control entrance into heaven. And they've used and misused the Scriptures for centuries to exercise that kind of control over people and use that any way that they see fit. And so it's still common among average uh, Roman Catholics and some Eastern Orthodox Catholics. Um, you hear their testimonies and they'll say, well, we've never actually read the Bible. Even though Bibles are so pervasive that you can find one anywhere, they can't stop people from reading the Bible. But they don't encourage it. They don't encourage people to study the Bible. They don't want them to do it on their own because only they can interpret the Scriptures in the right way. But the truth is, it's the Scripture that gives authority to the church. The Word of God gives the church its authority. All doctrine flows out of the Word of God itself, and that's what controls our practice Scriptures give authority to what we do here. And we're not to do anything that is outside the Scriptures. We can't operate on the outside of what the Bible tells us to do. Well, that brings us to the method that God used to give us Scripture. What do we believe about the origin of the Scriptures? Um, is the Bible or was the Bible written like any other book? 
Was it like Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings? I mean, is, is that how we got the Bible? Did somebody have an idea? Or several somebodies have an idea about who God is and what God thinks and how the world ought to operate? And so they just wrote it down and said, well, this is what you are to live by. That's actually how other religions got their scriptures, with their, their sacred documents. That, that's how that happened. Somebody philosophized about it and, and decided to write it down. This is what God is. This is what we believe. But is that the way that we received this book? Did God give us, or did we get the book in that way? Oh, well, the answer to that is no. The Bible is the Word of God that was delivered directly to humans as the instruments of it, of recording the message, and God used them to write it, and they wrote what God said, not what they thought should be said. The origin of Scripture is given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the first key word in our bibliology is that word, inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now that's that word, that inspiration of God, that phrase, that's all one word in the Greek. That is theopneustos. God breathed is what it actually means. God breathed out the Scriptures. And so the idea is that the divine Spirit of God, the pneuma, the wind, the breath of God, breathed into the minds of those who recorded His words. And so those words originated with God. God inspired men to write them down. He superintended what they wrote in such a way as to protect it from being corrupted by man's thoughts. God used human personalities. He used human writing styles. But he directed every word that was written. Listen to Paul as he writes to the Thessalonians. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. First Corinthians 2, he said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And then Peter in Second Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It says, Spirit, or rather, uh, Scriptures did not come by private interpretation. That means that these men did not think up themselves what they said was God's Word or what is written in the Bible. This is not their thoughts. This is God's thoughts. Now, because God has inspired the words, there are important claims that can be made about it. If He's the author of it, then we can make some important claims. The first one is, it's inerrancy. The Bible is inerrant. There can't be any mistakes in the Scripture. If God is perfect, then His Word must also be perfect. God didn't give us an inferior product when He revealed Himself. Now, He didn't allow men to supply any part of it, and so if it all came from God, it has to be perfect. When, when He gave it to them, it had, it had to be perfect. And if we can't take that much from the doctrine of divine inspiration, then we're left with a God that can fail. And if He fails, that means your salvation is suspect. Well, didn't we just say a moment ago that the, the Holy Spirit uses the Word to convict the heart 
And that word has to be right. If he convicts the, the word with a, uh, the heart with words that aren't true, then we can't find any salvation in it. So it, the word of God has to be inerrant. But people are confused about this sometimes, and the way that they interpret certain scriptures lead them to false conclusions. For example, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have a place there where the Apostle Paul is teaching, and what he says has been misinterpreted to prove that Paul went off the grid and started giving things that were his own opinions. Now, the subject that he was talking about in that chapter uh, has to do with marriage and divorce. And um, he, he was writing on that, or speaking to them about that, and then we come to verse uh, 12 in the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians, in which Paul said, But to the rest... Now, he said all these other things, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If a brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Now, what does he mean by that statement? What what does he mean, the rest speak I, not the Lord? Is this a point where Paul has moved from inspiration to supposition? Well, that's not the meaning of this. What he has in mind is that uh, he meant that what he had to say about this subject had not been addressed by Jesus when he was teaching on marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus taught about divorce, but what Paul was about to say next, Jesus had not given any personal teaching on. So the next words that Paul are about to, is about to say, what he wrote here, was given to him by the Holy Spirit, not by knowledge of things that Jesus had already spoken on this subject. And then there are other subjects that are spoken of in the same way. Paul received other things in the same way. I mean, he talks about the doctrine of the church. That wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Not the scriptures that they had to read and study. That The church wasn't there. But he said that was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, this mystery of the church. And so the Holy Spirit inspired him, just like the Spirit inspired Moses when he wrote the account of the creation. Now, Moses wrote that account thousands of years after the creation happened. Well, Moses wasn't there. He didn't see God create the world, of course not. He wasn't there when God spoke to Adam. Moses wasn't there when Noah was given instructions about the ark and God told him about the flood. And Noah wasn't there when God said to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees, I've got another place for you to go. Go there, follow me, go there. He wasn't there to, to hear any of that, to see any of that. So where did he get the information? Well, it was the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write those things down. And I'll say this as well, that what Moses wrote about a six-day literal creation is just as true as what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There is no difference. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we conclude that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and so it has no error. God never makes a mistake. His word must be perfect. Now, secondly, is the word infallibility. That's very closely related to inerrancy. I won't go deeply into that, but uh, the word of God is reliable. It's a place that you can go to because on any subject that it touches, it is 100% correct. You can always count on the Bible to be correct. It is infallible. The third word is sufficiency. The the Bible is sufficient. It's God's Word in its completion. That's what's known as plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration. We have the complete Word of God, which means there 
or no additions are needed to it. God said all that he intended to say. Now going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is fully sufficient for everything that we need. We don't need anything from an outside source. You know, I love to think about that because I never have to worry about what a charismatic preacher says when he says, well, I've just received a word of knowledge from God. And I've heard them say this so many times. I, I watch them on television sometimes, and they, one of them will say, God told me this. Nobody else knew this until God told me this, and now I'm going to tell it to you. And you know, that's kind of strange because the only ones who get a benefit, the benefit of that revelation, are the ones who happen to be there at the very time that he said it. So you wonder, every time a, a charismatic preacher gets a word of knowledge, why don't they reprint Bibles? Why don't we get that added to the Scriptures and we just repent it if that's a word that came from God? Now, when I hear those kinds of things, I, I say, you can keep that yourself. Why, why do I need to hear that? Well, how is that going to help me? God's already said, I've given you everything in the Word that is going to make you perfect. Everything in the Word that's going to give you all the reproof, all the doctrine, everything that you need to know about me is right there in my Word. So why do I need anything else? God is not going to add anything to His Word. So as far as inspiration is concerned, the way that we receive the transmission of God's Word and what we believe about how we receive it will determine whether we think that we can set it aside whether we think that we can afford to ignore it. It determines whether we believe anything else is equally authoritative with, God, authoritative with God's Word. Now, if God said that it is inerrant, infallible, it's fully sufficient, then we must believe that and obey it. Well, now that we've answered the question of inspiration, the next question is, do we still have it? Do we still have the Word of God? Now, the last words of Scripture were written almost 2,000 years ago. So is the Bible that we have in our hands today, is that the same as was given by the Holy Spirit when it was written? That brings us to preservation. Did God do anything to ensure that the Bible that we have is reliably His Word? And when you talk to people about this, most of them won't have any problem believing and accepting that as the Scriptures were originally given in the original manuscripts, that they were the Word of God. But when they want to make a point that things have changed and mistakes are made, or that there are mistakes in, in here, that takes us to the, uh, to the principle of preservation. What did God do in preserving the Word? Or did He preserve the Word? Now, we do know that there are warnings in Scripture about corruption of the Word. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17 says, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And so before the ink was ever dry on the pages, there was Satan trying to get people to change the Word of God. Well, God certainly knew that they would do that. Uh, and he knew that it wouldn't be any good, do him any good to deliver a, a revelation to us if he couldn't maintain the integrity of it. Salvation is dependent upon what we read here. It's dependent upon the accurate transmission of the word. It must be kept pure. And if God can keep pure 
what he wrote about salvation, which we maybe we can go that far, why can't he keep all of the Word of God pure? Well, of course he can. He has that ability to do it. Now, what I've just given you is an argument from reason, and we shouldn't really have any trouble using logic to reach valid con conclusions. Otherwise, um, our understanding of God gets skewed. It gets thrown off. That's the thing that we're trying to avoid. But keeping the right view of Scripture is the way that helps us to understand who God is. But it's not just reason alone. It's not logic alone that we rely on to teach us that the Scriptures are, have been preserved, that they are faithful, that what we have is the Word of God, because the Bible gives internal testimony about that. In Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. First Peter chapter 1, the scripture we read a moment ago, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this, this is the word by which we preach, by which the gospel is preached unto you. Now, all those scriptures tell us that God is not going to forget His Word. He's going to use that Word in judgment. He'll use it for Christians to judge our rewards. He'll use it for the lost to judge their sins. He can't judge them by a law that's not right, a law that's not good. It has to be the right law that He uses. Well, the next question that we have to deal with is with the translation of the Word. If there is a place to destroy it, it would be when it was translated out of the original languages to the language that we speak. Now, we don't have any copies of those original manuscripts. You, you can't go to the library or someplace, a museum, and find a, a manuscript that is the original that was given to the apostles. That doesn't exist. But there's a very good argument for preservation, which is that there are thousands of copies of these manuscripts that do exist. They come from different parts of the world and they are remarkably consistent in what they say. Remarkably consistent. And when there is an error in them, that error stands out. And Bible translators have recognized that and say, well, that's, that's, that can't be right because it doesn't match all these other manuscripts that have been given. Now, I don't really want to get into translation controversies tonight. Uh, for our purposes, we just want to know, is the finished product that we have in English, is it the true Word of God? There aren't any doubts that people have tried to pervert it in the translation. There are bad translations that are out there. You know, one of those is the message. I would never read the message from the pulpit other than just to show you how bad that it is. And, and what I do is if you go into my office and you look for it, you don't look for it on the same shelf with the Bible. You may not realize that, but you don't. You want to look for the message? It's two shelves below where I keep all my King James. And that's because I don't want it to get too close where it might corrupt the Word of God. So I put it on an entirely different shelf. 
So I, I look at some of these translations and I say, well, well let's, we shouldn't even have those things. I mean, the NIV, for crying out loud, I mean, that's more interpretation than it is translation. But there's a, a, a lot that goes into that. And without making a lot of boisterous claims about this, I think that we just ought to stick with the King James. Let, let's stay away from those who want to give us something they say is better. So when MacArthur or somebody like that says, well, you know, Mark 9 uh, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, that's not really part of the original manuscripts. That, that shouldn't even be there. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. Our, our word, the Bible that we have, is faithful, it's true, we can count on it. So at the very minimum, what you ought to do is look for a translation. I mean, if you're going to use something else other than King James, then be sure you at least do this. Look for a translation that is a verbally equivalent translation. Look for that. At the bare minimum, do that. But then I still think it's better that we just stick with the King James and then use the others as commentaries if you want to read those. So don't let anybody cast doubt on whether you have the Bible in your hands. Don't let anybody tell you that God can't keep his word preserved. His word is plenary. His word is inspired. It is inerrant. And when you reject those things, you've just opened up the door to change who God is. And when that happens, you don't have a God that's true. What is true? That's what we need to know. What is the authority for what we believe? And so if somebody comes and hands you something and says, this is the Word of God, then you have to ask, where, what is the authority for that? When they hand you a different book and they say, this is the Word of God, where's your authority for saying that? We have to know those things. If we don't know that, we risk losing the truth, the very truth that the Holy Spirit uses to lead people to salvation. So what do you believe about the Bible? You have to discern truth about the book before you can believe what's in the book. You have to know, is, is that what God said? Is there an authority for it? Well, then we see then that there are some, some doctrines of Scripture that are more important than others. Some are make a difference in the salvation of your soul. And I'll go this far to say all of them make a difference in how well that you serve Christ. So the best that we can do is try to be right about all of them. Whatever it is, study the Word of God to get the truth of that doctrine. Study it all, try to get it right. But believe what the Bible that you have is trustworthy. And in it, you can discover all the truth that God wants you to know. You don't have to go someplace else. Everything you need to know is right there when it comes to what God said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for leaving us uh, a trustworthy Bible, one that we can read and truly know that you are the one who wrote it, that the words that we read are descriptions of who you are, things that you want us to know, even like we, we talked about this morning, reading in Revelation 21 about heaven. We can trust that to be the absolute truth. What's said there is true. There's no guesswork there. We don't have to believe what someone else says that you've given us, given us in your word. We thank you, Lord, that the word reveals what salvation is, how, how we can be saved from hell. And, and we need to know the truth of that or else we die and we go to hell. We're thankful for the word because it strengthens our faith after we are saved. And when we're grounded in your word, then that just makes everything go the way that it should go in our lives. It makes us 
so much more appreciative of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, help us to be good students of your word and use it to lead others to you. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.